Amen. Thank you, worship team. This morning we are continuing a study we started a few weeks ago in Psalm 119, but it's designed where if you are here for the first time, you're fine, a lot of review, um, and we have just one more next week on this, and then we'll uh, be wrapping up Psalms the following week. The Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses, uh, 22 eight-verse stanzas. Each stanza is a letter of the Hebrew Bible, and if you were to read it in Hebrew, every verse in that stanza would begin with that letter. And so it was a constraint that the psalmist put on himself, the spirit put on him, where he would expound on the beauty and the glory of the law. Uh, When you think of the Psalms uh, 19 and 119 are the two that really drive home that God's law is actually beautiful and glorious. Uh, Last week we discussed how Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of God and that all uh, all of these truths of his commandments, his testimonies, his word really find their fulfillment in who Jesus is. And so um, the, the last verse of Psalm 119, after spending 175 verses on how beautiful the law is and how glorious it is and how he longs to follow the law, it, it ends like this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And that's really become the, the framework of this, of this series. Um, we started with, I will not forget your commandments. So last week we discussed what that means. What, is, what are his commandments? This week we're going to look at what he means when he says, seek your servant. It's a surprising thing you find throughout the psalm. And those scripture choices, I've, there were a lot. I had to narrow it down a little bit. But I went through and just highlighted all the places where the psalmist is asking God to show him, to teach him, to reveal. And it's an interesting juxtaposition because I think so often for us, we tend to only like things we think we sort of already have under control, right? We like certain things because we think we can do them. And if things seem out of reach, we sort of act like they don't matter anymore. They're not that important. But the psalmist goes throughout the psalm saying both, your law is beautiful, your law is glorious, your law is transformative, and then I need you. I can't get there. I need you to teach it to me. Show me. So that's what these verses all have in common. So I'll just start reading them. I hope they follow along on the screen. Uh, We'll see. I gave Coleman a ton of them. (laughs) And then I whittled it down. So we'll see what happens. Starting in verse 12, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes. I'm not going to say the verse references. I'll just start reading them. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. So you're beginning to hear that theme of longing for the law, but recognizing he needs help. In verse 33, he says, teach me, O Lord, the way Of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Then this will be the last verse we look at, and I'll I'll just uh, refer to several as we go. Confirm to your servant your promise. 
that you may be feared. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in this psalm we have a guide for both loving and longing and praising your ways, your truths, and yet at the same time a, a vehicle for crying out for rescue and help. Because, Lord, we know that left to our own devices, we would not fulfill any of these things. But, Lord, because of your grace and your mercy, we know that we now have access to you, Lord Jesus, to come through your spirit into our lives and give us a new heart that would long to see flourishing in this life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There are more verses. I'll refer to them as we go. Um, But this week I was reading a, a book on leadership of all things called The Failure of Nerve, but the, um, the author begins by talking about how in 1493, in the Nuremberg Chronicle, that the Chronicle describes Europe as depressed, that even though there had been a pretty good amount of time of, 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 of engineering with, with um, cathedrals and different architectural breakthroughs, that overall Europe was in an incredible depression And the author goes on to say, however, out of nowhere, it suddenly lifts. The depression lifts like a morning mist. Novelty begins to shine everywhere. And the seeds of the Renaissance that had been germinating for 200 years start to sprout vigorously. And he goes on to explain that really in 14, that was 1493. In 1492, do you all know what happens? The new world was discovered. That's how I'm going to say it. Because it fits. The new world was discovered. And he explains really not only that, but you also had the fact that the earth was no longer the center of their known universe. These two things start to happen in that time frame. And those shifts in reality begin to change everything. Even if you didn't go to the new world and you stayed on that acre of land where your great, great, great grandparents were, innovation and and insight and and revival would come through all these other resources as the Renaissance spread and really went on, and we've never gone back as the, as the New World into that sort of depression that it had been in for so long. And as I read that, I thought just about the fact that, what would that be like in our present context if, if all of a sudden, I would say NASA, but I think it's really Elon Musk, found another planet. Um, just a few months travel, we all could get on some sort of a ship, and it was as amazing as Earth. And it had all of the resources. And you could go, come and go. Uh, what would that do to our life here? Would that change things? And would that revive us and give us energy? Well, when we have Jesus reveal himself, he says, I have come from above. I have come to give you life. And when his disciples discover who he is and understand him, and we'll look at John 8 where he says that later, their, their eyes are open. They realize there is more to life than what's down here, what's just on our fallen planet, in our fallen hearts. And when I read Psalm 119, I'm blown away that he seems to be like aware of the fact that there is something beautiful and pure and true that if he could just get hold, a hold of it, it would revive and renew his heart. And that's my hope for us this morning is that we would that we would begin to believe and, and focus and look at the new world only for us, that means heaven, right? That the longing for heaven would shape our life on earth. Uh, here's a sentence I wrote. This is our topic. You asked me for my topic earlier. I wrote this down. I don't usually stop to read them like this. 
It's precisely what you make of the new heavens, the new world that we long for that will inform how you live in this world. And that's not a common thought, by the way, in Christianity. A lot of Christianity says we're just kind of getting through the mess. We can't wait for the next world. But the scriptures are very clear. The more I make of the next world, the more fully I'll live in this one. And so we're going to process that with Psalm 119. And the first thought we're going to have is that longing for the new world, the new order, the longing for heaven and God and Christ will actually create a healthy dissatisfaction in this world. Healthy. There's unhealthy dissatisfaction. We're not encouraging that. But would create actually a healthy sense that we need more. In, In 97, that's Psalm 119, verse 97. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment, verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. So there's this sense, as you read just that, that section, the psalmist has that, that, that there is sort of negative wisdom in his midst, and there is wisdom to be had. Now, wisdom is not knowledge, though it includes knowledge, but it's applied knowledge. It's understanding how those truths play out in daily life. And he's longing for that. And he says that makes him wiser than his enemies. And so the, the question I would have for all of us is do we have sort of that healthy dissatisfaction? Last night we watched, uh, I got to watch for the first time with my two daughters, Back to the Future. We watched E.T. a few weeks ago and it is not as good as I remembered. But... Back to the Future was better than I remembered. So what I love about uh, those kinds of movies, it, it sort of shows, like, what would it be like to go back in time with the knowledge you have now? Wouldn't you be dissatisfied? Wouldn't you be like, there's air conditioning, you know? Like, you can get in a car that goes much quicker and has less road noise. One of our favorite comedians, like our, my son and I and a few others in our home, Nate Brigazzi, I found this clip of him telling, he kind of, He's a clean comedian. So if you want to find a really funny, clean comedian, Nate Bergazzi, um, he has this little bit. In fact, it was Brenton Isles who put me onto him, so that's who gets the, the kudos wherever Brent is. Uh, there's a bit where he says, if I went back in time, we'd be in trouble because I would try to tell them about the future, but I wouldn't know, like, who the next president is, and he kind of beats himself up. And he said, I ended up being like a busboy at a cafe and just being stuck. So let's not be that guy. Let's be like, we have things about the new world that make us dissatisfied in the present context? What are things we glean from scripture, from our understanding of Jesus, that would inform us to go, okay, wait a minute. There are things right now in our midst that are really not great. And and things in my own life, in my own heart, are we dissatisfied? I'm gonna read some more verses, verse 81. There's 176 verses, like I've said, and I can't get through them all in the four sermons, but wouldn't it be great but I'm going to read a few verses starting with 81. He says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? You hear that? So it sounds so positive. And then he's saying, but I'm not comforted right now. I need to be comforted. When will you do this? I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Apparently that's not good for wineskins. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How must, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? 
And he goes on. So there's this dissatisfaction based on whom he knows God to be. He is seeing the realities in his midst and he's crying out for God to rescue him. Are you able to name things in your own life? Not criticizing other people, but naming things in your own heart where you're not fully experiencing these truths that you believe. Are you able to process the things in your life? I think a good example is an athlete. Um, Often we think that athletes who are down the road in their performing career need less coaching. And people at the very beginning of some kind of a new sport would need more coaching, right? And that's a, it's easy to do with Christianity. Like, I've been a Christian for so long, I don't need many touch-ups, you know, just a few things. But really, most athletes, you could throw like a, a person who's never been to the gym and just shove them into the gym for like 20 minutes. And just being in there is going to help them start to like get in shape. Because it's like, oh, I've never seen people run on a treadmill and work out. And then what happens when an athlete's been doing it for many, many years, it's like, how am I going to shave off those final two seconds, you know, in the 800 meter? It's like two seconds and I lost, I didn't get any medals, you know, and what am I going to do? And so coaching, coaches have to come in and get incredibly detailed with little nuances to coach them up. And I think as Christians, we need to expect the same. The longer I'm a Christian, the more eager I want to be to grow. An athlete who is super good at their sport actually longs to just shave off two seconds. Do you long to shave off the areas of your heart that are incredibly selfish, incredibly self-serving, hateful, angry? And I hope that we'll see that as we come closer to Jesus and grow in his likeness, rather than being less dissatisfied, in a healthy, godly sense, we'll be more dissatisfied. Which leads us to our second thought, which is just the opposite of that. And the reason for that is because what we're longing for with these rules and laws and commandments is a word I want you to, you know the word, but I want you to revision the word. And that's the word shalom. Shalom. In, in, in the Hebrew, that word, or in the English, that word means wisdom. But it's much more than just simply like wise or wisdom. It means flourishing. When, when the Hebrew scriptures use the word shalom, they have in, in, in mind the things are operating the way they were supposed to. Now, we do this all the time. We say things like, there should be a law. Have you ever said that? The second something doesn't go the way you want, we should make a new rule. Well, that's great. That's what we're designed for. We're made in the image of God. And we, should co- we come into the world we live in, and when we see things not operating according to the way they should, in our hearts, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our world, we should long for and pray for shalom to come to that situation through us and through our renewed passion for the Lord and his ways. In verse 65, the writer says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies. But with, with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. But I delight in your law. That's such a good imagery, isn't it? 
It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The writer there in that, in that short 65 to 72 stanza exposes the fact that both, again, the law is glorious, but he's been afflicted. And it was in that affliction that he realizes is where he actually learned that God's ways are beautiful and glorious. And he comes through that process by saying, your law is better than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Is that how we feel about the Lord's law and about longing for his ways? I mentioned John 8 earlier. Jesus is uh, talking to some Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees are the guys that um, pretended they had everything under control. So a Pharisee is never dissatisfied with their life because they figured it out. I know what I'm doing. I have my quiet time. Here's when I go to church. Here's how much I give. I'm good. And so when they would meet Jesus, they'd get really frustrated because he would say things like this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, they didn't like that because they're like, I don't walk in darkness. Why would I need you? So here we have the reality is this world is dark. And all of us, every human being has figured out certain ways, they think, to somehow get across the minefield to this life. And Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, but you're going to step into a minefield and it's not going to go well for you. You need the light of this world. You need me. And a Pharisee will say, I don't think so. I think I'm doing okay. But the Christian will say, absolutely, I need you. And think about that language. And think about Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is not the psalmist looking to Jesus. I want God to come to earth and show me the way by being the light for me. And then a few verses later, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, a Pharisee hears that and says, I am free. But a Christian hears that and says, that sounds wonderful. Because I'm bound up. What are you bound up by? Where, what is the darkness? And the answer we find when Paul talks in Galatians and Romans the answer is that we live under a regime before we come to Christ that operates by law, by evaluation, by what have you done for me lately. And we all have succumbed to that in our, in our daily lives so that even in our Christianity we almost apply it. We can't conceive of a God who would look at us and see us as righteous as Jesus. Yet that is exactly what Paul teaches, what Jesus teaches himself. That when Jesus dies on the cross, your sins have been forgiven, past present and future. What that means is you have a legal righteousness that you now are seen by God the Father as a son and a daughter. Or. A son or a daughter. And in Galatians 5, Paul says this. He says, you have been set free. Don't go back into slavery. Yet we do in so many ways, don't we? We start forgetting that God has lo that love for us. We start thinking about how we've done. We start evaluating everything we do. Um, have you ever, I'm, I'm always nervous about how <laughs> illustrations, up here by myself when I'm practicing, they sound amazing. 
When I talk to you, it's like, oh. And then the emails trickle in. But I've never, like, I, I want to be careful because I'm going to talk about homelessness for a minute. But I've heard of stories where people actually prefer homelessness. And so I'm referring to that situation right now. And I've heard of situations and I've even come across them where it seems like the person who only has these few items clings to them. You know, the, the cardboard wall and, and the special this and the thing there. And, and you get this sense, not that if you walked up, they would be like, you can take whatever you want. I just found it. But they would say, don't touch my, my stuff, right? This is my home. This is my, I value this. And what we would want to say if we have a home and we can see a better path for them is to say, you don't have any idea of the freedom that with just a few steps we could, you know, give you a new situation, a new home. I don't want it. This is where I'm going to stay. Christian, we live like this. We put up with the brokenness in our lives as if that's all we're going to have. And we hope in some future that one day, someday, we'll go to heaven and magically everything will change. And it's true that when we go to heaven, everything will change, we'll be glorified. But what we forget is that much of that glorification begins in the Christian life. This is a footnote from one of my favorite books that I hope will challenge you. John Henry Newman says this about heaven, which is the new world, right? He says, heaven is not for everyone. Yay. Now, he doesn't mean it like you think he means it. He's not, you know, a lot of people act like, I don't care where you are religiously, but heaven's going to be amazing, right? And it's like, well, time out. If you don't like God, you might not like heaven. That's his point. He says, heaven's an acquired taste, and it's hard to acquire while our taste buds, the tongue, imagine your tongue, still resemble a crocodile's back. An unholy person would be restless and unhappy in heaven. Everyone thinks it's so mean to tell a person or to think that a person that's not a Christian can't go to heaven. And you want to say, well, you're going to hate heaven. If you hate God now, you're not going to want to stand in his presence. You hate him. The point is, though I have flesh, though I have sin, though this side of glorification, I will never be beyond those realities, there should be a part of me, the redeemed part, the new self that loves the law, so with the psalmist, I can at one and the same time say, I love your ways, I believe Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and yet help my unbelief. That's what the gospel calls us to do and frees us to do. So how do we bring these together? The dissatisfaction with our own setting and the longing for shalom, both as being sort of two sides of one coin, that's that. How do we then enact that? How do we move in that direction? And why, what does this psalm teach us? And what I love is it teaches us to cry out. So often I think we're afraid to ask for something or hope in something until we see the plan. Oh, I can, I can kind of see how I'll do it. Now I can pray that God might provide that. Has anyone ever prayed like that? I do. I sort of wait to ask till it seems reasonably possible. And yet every, I mean, every other verse, it seems like it's not quite that many, but a lot, seem to be the psalmist saying, teach me, show me, change me, open my eyes. Is that your prayer life? So I want to tell you a story from the Bible because those are the best. Jesus walked on the water. Raise your hand if you knew that. Okay, Jesus walked on the water. He, they, that one singular story appears in Matthew. It appears in Mark and John. But in the Matthew version, there's an extra 
little fun bit you get, and that's Peter walking on the water. Now, I have preached on that. I've talked about that. But somehow this week I decided to look a little bit, I don't know, as a preacher, the most humbling thing is you come to a passage and you're like, I've never noticed that before. Uh, I mean, and I, I've talked about it many times. And here's what I noticed. The point of Matthew, Mark, and John's account really is this. When the disciples see Jesus, they think he's a ghost. And they're scared. And they're like yelling. And then Jesus, from some distance, says, fear not, it is I. And they calm down. And then he comes on the boat. That's the story. I've always thought, and you can, I would like to, I'm going to have a show of hands after I tell you my first thought. I've always thought when Peter gets out of the boat, it was an act of better faith than the disciples. Raise your hand if you're with me. Okay, I've always thought, you know, this is like the super apostle. He's going to go, hey, if that really is Jesus, I'm going to come out and walk on water like he's doing. The problem is, he says, if it's you, Lord, bid me to come. If, excuse me, they were all fine when I said it is I. You're saying the word if, and that's a big word. So Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, as you know. And it's not very long before he sees the wind. You can't see wind. It's the waves that are crashing. He's terrified. He doesn't say, Lord, if it's you, save me. He says, Lord, save me. So Peter's faith seems less. He needed this next thing to happen to fully know it's Jesus. Now, I don't mind if you don't agree with that because I'm not 100% sure, but I like it. And when you read the Bible, sometimes you have different possibilities. The key is this. It happened, and we're trying to learn from it, and Jesus gets to him and says, why did you doubt? And you say, did he doubt that he would stand on the water? Maybe. That's what I've always thought. Or did he doubt it was Jesus? Is your Jesus a ghost standing in the distance creating fear? Or is your Jesus clasping onto your hand because you've cried out to him, save me? It's fascinating to me because I've already talked about James. And James, right at the beginning of his amazing letter, says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. We've talked about this several times. He doesn't mean if you lack knowledge, ask God, and God will supernaturally impart knowledge to you because we get the knowledge from Scripture. He means if you lack wisdom, what does that mean? I know the, I know the truth. I'm supposed to love my enemy. I now have an enemy, and I don't feel love. Lord, help me apply the truth in daily living. That's wisdom. Give me the ability now that this situation is here, this affliction, Psalm 119, to actually love the enemy, to turn the other cheek, etc., etc. But don't doubt, James says. When you ask, Lord, I want to love my enemy, he's saying, believe the Spirit will give you a heart of love. Or do you know what James says he'll do? But a person who asks but doesn't believe, what will that be like? Does anyone? I'll just tell you. It's rude. He says this, for the person, no, no. He says, for let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Can anyone in this room imagine writing that sentence, having been on the boat 
and seeing the Peter thing happen. James was there. And not equating the two. So I'm not saying James is telling us what happened to Peter, but it feels like it. It feels like James had a front row seat to what it looks like to doubt Jesus and get terrified and get tossed by the waves. So here we are as brothers and sisters in Christ with one application. Cry out to Jesus. I um, have this book called Atomic Goals. It's a pretty interesting book. I'm not promoting it. But I'm, I love the fact that it sold 2 million copies. And these books that sell 2 million copies have extremely hard tasks that people eat up. It makes me want to become a legalist because I think I would, like, you all would just come in droves and want to write down every little thing I say to do. Like, oh, do that, do that. Like, and then you get the gospel and it's like, okay, that sounds too easy. And the gospel is the hardest thing you can do because it means actually trusting Jesus loves you. But here's the assignment that author gives. He says, write down every habit you have for an entire day. Like, uh, uh, turn the alarm off, check my phone, brush my teeth, just write them all down. And as I'm thinking about that assignment he gives, I'm like, that's not a bad idea. Like, to go through your day, and instead of doing that, you can do that too. Write down all the places where if you were to write your habits down, that you would say, that probably doesn't conform to, like, what I think God would want. How many of you would have, like, at least one item that's a habit that doesn't quite conform to what God wants? I have a lot. And uh, just, and I'm not even talking about sins. I just mean things that seem unhelpful. But here's the next thing. Cry out to Jesus to change you, to save you, to rescue you. What if you began to do that? So let me make it this simple. Pick one struggle in your heart. One struggle. Something you're, you think will never go away, you don't like to talk about or think about. That one thing. And my challenge to you would be this very day. Test the Lord by crying out, Jesus, save me. Without any plan of changing. Please, don't come up with your plan your system, and then cry out. I'm asking you to cry out with no plan and see if the Spirit won't start to change your heart. I'm not saying that you'll never sin again, or that you'll never, but he'll begin to give you a heart that wants what he wants. Isn't that what we're after? Aren't we desiring in our sanctification to find that our desire life matches more and more Jesus' heart? And that when we read verses like, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and the weight comes crashing down, the gospel says, wait a minute, time out. I serve a God that is going to change me to that degree one day, someday? Praise Jesus. He is not a stingy God. He will give you a heart of flesh. Test him. Let's pray. We praise you, Jesus, that you long to make us holy because that is what brings you glory and causes us to flourish at the same time. Forgive us for thinking your ways are hard, for being like the man that buried his talent, saying you are a harsh master, when in reality you are the most gracious and glorious God we could ever dream, and yet you are real, and you've rescued us, and you died on a cross that we would be set free. Forgive us for running into our squalor. Teach us to cry out to you through the power of your Holy Spirit. 
save me, rescue me from this sin, from this dilemma, from this situation. Lord, we need this because we can't do it on our own. It's in your name we pray. Amen.